0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club for the month of December 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer here at Slate, and I'm joined today in the DC studio by Jacob Brogan. Jacob is a DC-based writer and editor whom you may know as the host of the podcast, Working. Hello. And calling in from New York is Gabriel Roth, a Slate senior editor and the editorial director of Slate+. Plus. Hi, Katie. Um, So before we get started, I'd like to throw to Gabe who has some important information for listeners about Slate Plus.
0: Thank you guys for having me on the show. I'm, I'm super excited to talk about Michael Chabon's Glow, which we will be doing in just a minute. But first, I wanted to uh, let everyone know about Slate Plus, which is Slate's membership program. Uh, if you like the work that Slate does, if you enjoy our website and our podcasts, if you found our coverage useful over the election season and you want to help us cover the Trump administration, uh, if you love our cultural coverage uh, or anything else that we do, please consider joining Slate Plus, our membership program. Uh, members help support everything that we do, uh, make our work possible possible they also get a bunch of exclusive content uh, and lots of other great features you can find out everything you need to know by going to slate.com slash plus you can also find out how badly i did on the slate news quiz
1: every week <laughs>
2: Well, that sounds very enticing and tempting. Thank you for thank you for that, Jacob and Gabriel. Um, as Gabe mentioned, our book this month is the latest novel by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Michael Chabon. Um, it's Moonglow, part family memoir, part tall tale, part realist fiction. This is the story of a character known only as my grandfather, a kind of Jewish superhero whose life mirrors and intersects with the life of the country from World War II through the present. Tongue loosened by painkillers, this man starts in- unspooling his memories to our narrator, Mike, during his final 10 days. The stories emerge out of order, ranging from his military service as an engineer in Germany during World War II, to his twilight romance with his neighbor at an old person's community in Florida. The heart of the book, I think, chronicles the grandfather's relationship with his wife, a passionate, secretive, witchy refugee from France who may or may not be what she seems. Anyway, there's a lot of plot here, um, as you guys can probably tell from my... um, (laughs) written down a summary here, um, but we're going to go off script now. Um, and there is a lot going on and I haven't even mentioned the rockets and the models and the dreams of a moon landing. So I want to know, Gabe, whether you felt overwhelmed like Shabon was trying to walk too many tight ropes or juggle too many balls at once. Um, was there anything in this book that you could do without? Or conversely, how do you think he made um, all of the various narratives in this winding multi-part book hang together?
0: Uh, I, I didn't feel overwhelmed at all. Um, one of the things that Shayban I think, is really good at in this book and and throughout his work is uh, a kind of big capacious novel that takes a bunch of themes, maybe from a particular historical period, but also um, specific cultural tropes and and um, threads and kind of weaves them together into one big story. Um, and and he's just he knows what he's doing when he puts together that kind of a big baggy novel that, that combines a lot of stuff. Um, the problem that he has run into in the past for me uh, is a tendency to then wind up weaving all of those threads together too neatly in a way that often feels contrived. I feel like uh, his, his most famous book, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it's a great, great book. I love that book. Um, there's something at the end where he sort of winds it all up with a magic trick that delivers everybody a happy ending that diminishes the book for me. And something similar, I think, happens in Telegraph Avenue, the the novel that he wrote before Moonglow. Uh, but I think in Moonglow, there's a deftness, and I Uh, there's a way in which he manages to make it the combination of these things feel natural and organic that he hasn't quite managed before. Uh, And so rather than feeling overwhelmed, uh, I I was very moved by it. I would say that, if I can
1: speak to that as well, that while I wasn't uh, overwhelmed by the details that you speak of, I often found myself overwhelmed by the intimate fact of family history, uh, which is, for me, the weightiest thing here. It's not History that has weight. I mean, we're we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking about uh, World War Two, we're talking about everything that came after. But it's these little encounters between uh, his grandparents, between Shaban's grandparents, or or at least the the narrator who bears shaban's names, grandparents, uh, that I found um, the most overwhelming at times.
2: Overwhelming in a good way, or
1: yeah, okay? I, I mean. It, I kept reading yeah. uh, but there were t- – the times when I found myself putting the book down for an hour or two uh, and it is a very readable, uh, propulsive novel despite the discontinuous uh, narrative strands that he weaves together. Uh, the times when I found myself putting it down were the times when I just needed to kind of bathe in that fact of feeling uh, for a little bit uh, and let the, those feelings be. Let them settle.
0: I had a similar experience, actually. The one thing that does feel overwhelming, not in a uh, not not in the sense of a, an artistic fault, but in the sense of an, an artistic effect, uh, for me, it's the characters' pain. It's it's just the tremendous pain that these people go through over the course of the painful lives, and uh, yeah, sometimes that was a lot to to read about in a very powerful way. It's a book about spaceflight, uh, to some
1: extent. We hear a lot about rockets. Uh, there's a wonderful bit early on where where he uh, Cheban describes the tangle of wild black curls that had enacted Medusa feats in zero gravity uh, on an astronaut. Um, we hear a lot about zero gravity, a lot about lessened gravity, but but family history just kept pulling me down. And and as as Gabe says, it, in a good way. Uh, it was a literary accomplishment that it affected me in that
2: regard. I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about zero gravity like right off the bat because while I was deeply moved by a lot of what happens in this book, I think I was more delighted and diverted and kind of um, immersed in pleasure than I was. And and I worry that there's now on reflection, because I enjoyed reading the book so much, but like having put it down and thought about it, for a while, I'm worried that there is a kind of weightlessness to it and that we are meant to understand that the characters feel pain, but that there aren't a lot of really deep explorations of that pain. And for instance, um, you know, even when uh, the grandfather is driving around on Halloween night looking for his wife who has suffered a, an episode of madness and seems to have taken off and may have set a tree on fire, um, he's looking for her and we don't actually hear what he's thinking or get a sense of his emotions we know that it must be an upsetting time for him but instead we get these kind of glorious Shabanian um descriptions of the the costumed children walking by in the streetlights um and I just wonder whether you guys had that worry that perhaps this very delightful confection that gestures towards pain um doesn't actually do the work of of summoning that pain
0: I, I would say for me at least, this is the the, the criticism that you describe. Uh, is something that, that applies much better to almost every other book that Shabon has written than to this one. I feel like this is the moment where he has figured out how to get inside of something. And he does it not through the kind of interior monologue that you're talking about, not by telling us, oh, this is the the sound of the grandfather's agony as he searches for his wife who's having a breakdown, Um but by a kind of heightened dramatization, in in the scene that you're talking about, uh, he's looking for his wife. It's Halloween night. He he. It's dark, and all, all he sees under the streetlights are little crowds of children in spooky costumes. And the scene takes on, for me at least, a kind of mounting horror, uh, where because he's he's really worried about her, he doesn't know what she might have done. We know that she's still alive because we the, the book is told in a not entirely chronological way, and so we we've seen her subsequent to this, and we've seen her relatively healthy, although clearly a very disturbed and damaged person. Um, but the sort of heightened and and the grotesque aspects of the the sequence it's it's another example. For one thing, of Shaman playing with genre tropes, where the, the 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 grandmother has a night job as a horror hostess, like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, or someone like that, on a local television station. She reads Edgar Allan Poe stories, dressed up as a spooky witch on on TV. The night um, the Night Witch, exactly. And, and that genre stuff kind of, as so often in Shabon, kind of leeches out of the genre work and into the substance of the world of the book uh, by the contrivance of having a, the sequence be set on Halloween. Um, but no, I found it very frightening and, and sort of powerful.
2: So the book is accessing those emotions, even if the character is not sort of describing them in his own internal monologue, and the book is doing that through the quality of Shapen's art.
1: Does the book have to access emotions? I mean, to our, our protagonist here, uh, as, as I think you say in your own review, uh, his grandfather, that is, mm-hmm. is a fundamentally stoic character, um, but that stoicism, that invention of a kind of stolid, uh, stable intensity yeah uh, on his own origins on our narrator's origins uh it is itself a work of fantasy you described him as a jewish superhero
2: yeah
1: uh, earlier which is not an unfamiliar concept for for chabon but uh but i i don't know that the goal here is to is to show his pain to the extent that there is also certainly more definitely a goal here to to show him uh Heroic, yeah. powerful, and yet sometimes somehow helpless all the same.
2: Yeah, I think the reason I'm interested in the various manifestations or not of pain here is because my sense uh, with reading Cheban in general, but especially with this book, is that he is kind of a master sublimator. And where we would normally get a straightforward um, account of someone's feelings, we get magical realism. In Shabon. And so those sort of fantastical scenes, like the sort of fevered passages that Gabe was describing with the, the children who are suddenly grotesque, um, all of that is um, imagination taking the place of emotional uh, revelation or intensity. And so like the weirder it gets, that's that's our signal as readers that like this is where it's getting really real to the narrator. Maybe. yeah
0: i mean I, it seems like what you're it seems like you and i are describing it the same way except that for me it really worked in a powerful emotional way and and maybe for you it didn't and so you're seeing it as a signal rather than a, like actual em- emotionally vivid manifestation in many ways michael Shaban i think
1: is a writer of action uh he's he's fascinated with bodies especially male bodies in motion uh throughout the 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 few novels of his i've read and um i think that attention to movement uh is is sometimes more important for him than uh than the attention to emotion which doesn't mean that he's not talking about emotion i point to a a bit where the narrator is speaking of his own father uh and he 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 writes that his his father uh, mistaking incapacity for a philosophy of life Uh, My father did not often apologize, but when he did, he would look first, he would, excuse me, he would first look down at his shoes. Um, That, that sense in which someone's feelings are encoded in the action is, is wired deep uh, into the kind of writing uh, that, that Chabon does. And I think the kind of uh, observation uh, that he makes of others.
2: Yeah. And I actually don't want to imply that this did not work on me. It absolutely did. And I actually, I think I prefer the kind of masked and transformed, uh, heightened feeling. Um, you know, if, if it's expressed through, uh, fantastic imagery as opposed to like, and then he felt the weight of his sorrow weighing down on his soul. Like, who wants to read that? Um, but it, it does strike me as interesting because the narrator, at least, says that he's always been all about self-expression. And he even says, I flew the flag of self-expression. I had emerged into adolescence towards the end of the 70s, that great unbuttoning. And he basically says that confession um, is seen as a transformative act. And that obviously um, conflicts with the philosophy of life that his grandfather holds. Um and I wonder if you guys think that the book comes down on one side or the other. Is it better to to stay silent? Is it better to talk about these things on your deathbed? Um, and for that matter, is, it, um, is the narrator helping his grandfather by relieving him of these suppressed memories? Or is he taking from him? Is he exploiting him?
0: I don't know that there's a moral valence. I don't know that the book takes a position on the moral valence of... A uh, disclosure versus silence. Uh, I, there's a way in which this is a bit ve- like, as in the passage you read. There's a way in which this is an almost stere- stereotypical generational set of traits, right? There's a way in which the grandfather is from the great silent generation that that fought and won World War II, uh, and and the grandson who uh, it it's made clear is a fictionalized version of Michael Chabon, the novelist. Um, is a you know a was born at the end of the sixties and and is from a generation that that wears its feelings on its sleeve uh, and the book is a celebration of the grandfather as you said and and of the grandfather's generation and way of life and and approach and it also uh, it it you know the portrait that it paints of that character it doesn't pull punches and it it shows his shortcomings as a person um but i i think it's less interest i think the book is less interested in uh weighing up the value of these two approaches and and more interested in recreating the the this sort of vanished way of life and vanished uh approach to to being a human being in the world uh in all of its texture and and with all of its challenges and with all of its virtues
2: jacob do you agree
1: yeah, I, I mean, I'm still thinking about the question of that you asked—the question of whether he's taking something from from his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is, he's adding something to his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is thick uh, with what have to be invented details, even in the context, even if we b- were to believe the basic premise, which is mm-hmm. that in the last ten days of of his life, uh, Michael Shaben's grandfather told him a bunch of stories about his past. If we accept that premise, and if we look at the way that his grandfather talks when he tells those stories, uh, then it is still impossible that his grandfather told him as much as we find here. Mm -hmm. He is adding to his grandfather. He is multiplying his grandfather. He is authoring his own ancestry mm-hmm. at every point. And I, I would think of that whenever he would describe someone's clothes, you know, the, the particular uh, uh, weave of the Harris Tweed on someone's jacket or something yeah. like this. Um, that Chebanian description uh, is maybe an imposition on his grandfather, maybe an amplification of his grandfather. But either way, I don't think it's an appropriation uh, of that legacy of that past. and I don't think what we're really looking at even within the context of what the book offers uh, is something like a confession uh, by his grandfather. I think uh, instead it's an attempt to imagine uh, his own past, to imagine his own history in a way that invents the self, invents the well, author in the right. process and
2: that but see that's the thing. like this book strikes me as much about, Michael Chabon or his surrogate, his narrator surrogate, as it is about his origins because they are frames. Like they're not named, uh, they are framed as my grandfather, my grandmother, and they basically seem to be participating in this Freudian or Oedipal idea, as I wrote in my review, that the the self can really only be known and revealed by revelations about one's mother and one's father and one's ancestry. And so, to me, this book is about Michael Shabon, and like the idea just the idea that his his uh characters who he holds up for for admiration it's not like he's he's saying anything um i mean he has he has a lot of respect for both of them, but um he doesn't name them and it it doesn't bother me because I appreciate art making and I appreciate storytelling, but I also don't think that this is um. I don't think that this is a pure service to his grandfather. Like, I am beautifying your story. I'm embroidering it.
1: There's a very practical edge to not naming those characters, though, which is that it makes it much harder to tell whether this story is true. When, when we got to the, the Night Witch part uh, that that Gabe brought up, I found myself excitedly Googling to see if I could figure out whether this program was real, which, of course, it's almost certainly not. And if it is in any way, then, then he's still added a great deal to it. Uh, but it was much harder to, to find anything but writing about the novel itself yeah. uh, because of that, that abstraction. Uh, you know, the, um, the refusal to name these characters, um, that refusal uh, of specificity um, is, is maybe ironically uh, a way of maintaining the hoax, mm. the playful hoax, that this is a work of fact and not a fictional story.
0: There's a thing that Chabon likes to do in essentially in all of his work, which is to think in terms of genre, both in the form of the book and in the the substance of the book. So, for instance, Cavalier and Clay is about people who make superhero comics, and it also borrows formal tropes from within superhero comics to tell the story of the people making the superhero comics. Um, th- that's an obvious example. Or the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is a detective story, straightforwardly uses the techniques of the detective story, or he wrote another. An Vella about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but, but even in the books that don't seem directly to refer to genre, um, like The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, his first novel, uh, he's written about uh, looking at um, Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth, Philip Roth's first novel, and looking at The Great Gatsby and realizing that they were both the story of a, a, a peripheral young man over the course of three months of the summer um, and, and finding a little miniature genre and then writing his own entry in that genre. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Moonglow participates in, in the genre of the family saga or the family memoir, right? It, there's part of it that is that like, oh, this is an intergenerational, a multigenerational saga in which we find out how the sins of the grandparents pa- are passed on through the generations. And, and this is, um, as you suggest, um, the, the sort of, um, logic of the genre is that i am this way because my mother was this way because her father was this way because and so on and so on through time um but it, it, the genre it more directly participates in is the the uh oral genre of um family storytelling and lore right the things you and know particularly about
2: your deathbed narr- narrative and right, the, right
0: That's right. Um, and the things, you know, the way the things that you know about your ancestors were handed down to you in bits and pieces in little snatches, maybe while looking at photograph albums, which some of the characters do in this book, except that the photographs are missing. Um, maybe by, maybe, maybe in the course of an anecdote that your mother told you about her childhood, and that's how you learned something about your grandparents. Um, And the, the, the way in which this book is organized, which is, um, chronologically seems like a mess at first until over the course of the book, it begins to cohere in a more, uh, Conventionally, sort of suspenseful and and novelistic way, um, but it it mimics that experience of piecing together the stories of your own background um, over the course of your childhood and your adulthood. Gabe, you brought up one of my favorite uh,
1: sequences in the book, and one of the ones that is most telling. In her review, Katie wrote that almost any sentence in this novel could be said to encapsulate the whole of the novel in one way or another. Uh, but there is one sequence that absolutely encapsulates what I think Shabon himself is doing in the book, which is this one when his mother goes through a, a an old uh, volume of photographs uh, from which the photos have disappeared. And she points to them and she describes what was in that photograph, Uh what she remembers of that thing it's an act at once of uh preservation of an already lost thing and of invention uh of transformation and to the extent that the book is doing something similar i wonder whether it uh is is partially about exposing some of the mechanics uh of family history of a genre which as you said gabe uh is is one in which uh the the fragment uh, is the primary object of currency. Uh, and to the extent that the fragment is always the object of currency, uh, we're always unfolding um, more than we actually have access to, uh, extracting uh, stories that we've never been told, but only could have ever imagined from the ones that we were told.
2: Yeah. Well, and also to throw in some some more uh, piecemeal rectangles, I guess, uh, playing cards, and especially the the deck of Tarot, tarot cards um, are really central here. And you see the grandmother kind of doing the same inventive process uh, that you talked about the mother doing. She takes cards and she sort of spins off stories based on these fragmentary or incomplete um, or kind of archetypal uh, figures and
1: yeah, It's a beautiful, marks. S- a beautiful description of his grandmother uh Looking at the card that has a coffin on it, and telling a story about Moses' mother using yes. it as a boat that she chases him down the river because she couldn't let him out of the sight. and the storytelling from fragments uh, is an act of love here. Storytelling in the face of absence uh, is an act of desire uh, here. and I think both of those things, that that complex interplay of love and desire uh, are are is central to what Shaban is doing throughout the book as a whole.
2: You guys were in zero gravity. Gabe, bring us back to bring us back to Earth.
0: Well, we've talked a lot so far about the characters and the relationships between the narrator, Michael, the Michael Shabon character, his mother, her parents. Uh, this these close and complicated family relationships. But the book also intersects with history in this big way, right? And and what feels to me like the fulcrum of the book is something that, that happened to the grandfather uh, at the very end of the Second World War when he, he was involved in uh, what was called Operation Paperclip, which I didn't know but which I have learned was an actual uh, military or was an actual project of the uh, office of – is it? Uh, The OSS. Strategic Services, I believe. Thank you. The Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor of our CIA, um, in which um, the Americans uh, rushed into Germany after the war. To compete with the Russians, to snatch up all of the scientists who had been working on the the German um, aerodynamics and rocketry projects and and nuclear weapons and and all of these military scientists, um, the most famous of whom, Werner von Braun, uh, is a character in the in who appears near the end of the book. Um, but so the grandfather in this story, uh, in in searching for Werner von Braun and and the other German military scientists at the end of the war stumbles upon the town of Nordhausen and the the Dora concentration camp which was where essentially um the Nazis enslaved thousands and thousands of people to work on rocketry projects which they were hoping to use against the allies in the war uh and it it's a portrayal of an aspect of the holocaust that doesn't get talked about as often as the the murder of the jews for instance but um uh, is in its way just as horrific, uh, and, and the traumatic impact on the grandfather is very palpable, and it's a very shocking and sort of rupturing moment in the book when these horrible material facts from history kind of. Uh, intrude on the characters in the book, and, and the trauma of that discovery for the grandfather winds up. Uh, I don't want to say explaining why he is the way he is, but motivating him for much of, of the rest of his life and 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 the rest of the action in the book.
1: To the extent that uh, that trauma, as you say, motivates him throughout, uh, part of what it complicates is the sort of uh, subtler romance of this novel, not not the grandfather's romance with the the grandmother. But rather his own imagined romance yes. with with Werner Braun, von Braun, yes. who uh, he is first obsessed with and has all these fantasies about going uh, going to the moon, I think with, and then he discovers what what von Braun has wrought, and uh, is just so horrified that that decades later in prison he tries to black uh, the scientist's name out of uh, a book that he's studying, I think.
0: There's a moment when the, the Apollo landing on the moon is taking place, and it's in a way the culmination of everything that the grandfather has hoped humanity is going to accomplish in his lifetime, and he refuses to watch it because for him it's been contaminated by Nazism and and violence and murder and torture and death. Um, and, and that idea that, that even the greatest achievements of humanity are, are built on the backs of oppression and inhumanity and fascism, um, it, it, it was really powerful for me. Maybe it's this horrible moment that we're at in our own political history, but um, uh, that felt very uh, palpable and real.
2: Yeah, uh, the purity of his idealism in the first part of the book was one of the defining things about his character for me. And the poisoning of that idealism was very, very sad and affecting. And I thought that he did, Shaban did a really, um, beautiful job of showing that just in the particular fantasy, like the particular daydream that, um, that the grandfather had before he discovered the town Nordhausen and um at first he as Jacob mentioned uh dreamed about going to the moon with Werner von Braun and discussing the engineering uh behind that and then afterwards he just wanted to escape with his wife and have a two-person settlement on the lunar surface with her tending her garden and them watching earth sink um sink into night and it was so sad that um that the sort of shining achievements of science uh were now uh being revised downward like we just we like get me out of here and
1: yet i just uh, want to leave the planet yeah and yet he doesn't stop there. Shabon doesn't stop there because by the end of the book uh when the grandfather comes across uh von Braun uh urinating into a ficus if <laughs> i recall correctly
2: such uh, a shayban yeah, detail you're...
1: too the the most in detail uh, uh after that uh what is it that when when they're when they're talking uh, as as von Braun is later looking at the models that the grandfather constructs these elaborate beautiful models that 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 the narrator's grandfather constructs uh von Braun is, is fascinated with uh this model of a moon colony that uh that the grandfather has begun at that point only to construct and it's his fascination with that moon colony that ends up uh giving the grandfather a, a career a, a whole life's well, late life's work after the death of his wife in, I think, 1975, uh, where he becomes a sort of model maker for NASA and private collectors, uh, and, and it's quite profitable for him. So there's some way in which, uh, even he is ultimately complicit in, uh, von Braun's, uh, sins. Uh, it's only because of this, this monstrous, brilliant man that the grandfather, uh, is able to survive and thrive. Uh, late in his wife, after the death of his wife.
2: With Werner von Braun and with all the characters, there is kind of this doubleness uh, throughout the book. And I think that we get our first taste of that when uh, the grandfather has his first sexual experience with a hermaphrodite. But it also emerges in the symbolism of the moon, which, of course, has... The dark side. So there's the moon, and then the dark side of the moon. And also, in the sense that um, the narrator, Mike, is the product of these two uh, strands of ancestry the kind of pragmatic grandfather and the dreamy, romantic grandmother, who is also mad. And that, of course, gets to the duality of the moon, too. You know, one is a- as an object of scientific inquiry, and the other is. The the age old symbol of lunacy.
0: Yes, although it's it's significant also that the grandfather uh, is not the narrator's grandfather biologically. Right, the the narrator is descended from the, the book's hero in in all kinds of different ways, uh, but not through his DNA because the the grandfather married the grandmother and adopted the narrator's mother when the mother was a little girl. Um, and and I'm about to uh, reveal something from from near the end of the book. Um, if anyone hasn't finished reading this, would be a good moment to skip ahead. Um, but the, the narrator's biological grandfather appears to have been an SS man who, who raped the grandmother uh, during the war. Um, and so the duality is even more complicated there, right? Because the what what the narrator has in him biologically is very dark indeed. And indeed, it, the, the history of that historical trauma of Nazism,
1: of the Holocaust, uh, is always in the background for Chabon, both both the character... Uh, narrator Shabon here, and and I think the author more generally. And you know, if we're going to speak of of dualities and the way this book complicates them, it, it warns us that it's going to do that uh, from uh, the very start with this this quote that it attributes quotation that it attributes to uh, Werner von Braun. Uh, there is no dark side of the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark, uh, and that's something that that Shaban uh, has his grandfather uh, repeat near the end, uh, uh, as if to affirm that that was the message all along. That it's not attributed to, to von Braun at that point, uh, to is, – is her name Sally, uh, yeah. uh, the, grand, the grandfather's uh, lover in the, the last months of his life. Um, that is to say, uh, if the book is beginning with these kind of binaries, with the dark side of the moon and the light, uh, uh, with with the whimsical and the mad and so on, it ends by complicating all of them. Uh, it, every side uh, contains the trace of the other uh, and we're always complicit in, among other things, it turns out, uh, the fact of Nazism.
2: Yeah. And also even just saying that it's all dark is a way of saying it's all mysterious. We'll never actually sort these into two uh, piles anyway. Um, the dark, I think, is, like everything else, not a fixed uh, quantity in this book. It can be very liberating and and important.
0: We're talking about the darkness of this book a lot and and there is a lot of darkness to talk about. Um but we're maybe scanting the amount of pleasure there is in the book as well. Yes. Katie, did you find this a pleasurable book to read?
2: I was so delighted. Like I think this is why I'm giving it a hard time with you guys because you it is so I mean, when you are in the hands of a novelist this good, it is this kind of uniquely pleasurable experience where, like, all of your suspense um dials are, like, dialed at the correct place and the tension and the release and the beauty of the language and the, the dramatic irony. Like, everything is just... Optimal, like it makes me feel like he built this machine and everything was just optimized. <laughs> um, and I mean, his, I wrote a little bit in the review about the different registers, uh, at which he writes perfectly. Like he can do this very lyrical, beautiful, um, work that's kind of feverish. Um, and then he can do, um, very smart realism. He does very funny, tech jargon um i don't know like you guys jump in but but how did you feel about the sort of uh pleasure center uh targeting aspects of this novel
1: at almost every point in this book every time i really just focused in on a sentence and you can do it on any page and in almost any paragraph i found some little gem hiding in a clause uh in a choice of A word, a verb alone. Uh, He's really just a marvelous, marvelous writer. And
0: uh, it's impossible for me to not take pleasure in that. Absolutely. I I have also felt in the past that that kind of virtuosity, which was with him from the very beginning, right? If you've read The Mysteries of Pittsburgh recently, which was his first novel, uh, it, it has that exact same virtuosity. In that book, it felt like a 22 year old guy entranced with the possibilities of language and with his own ability and wanting to sort of show off in this very enjoyable way. Um, in his more recent books i I had worried that that had kind of hardened into a set of mannerisms Telegraph Avenue, the book before this um w- which it, it, for me is so colorfully and in, and and uh vividly and overflowing with with metaphor and simile and figure of speech and beautiful f- turns of phrase and observation that it became almost unreadable to me it was it was like a dessert with too many different kinds of sugary treat um and in moon glow i feel like he's once again kind of harnessed those talents and and that linguistic ability that ability both to make you see things in the, the see the things that he describes fresh and and vividly, and then also to give it a kind of spin that lets you understand either its context or its meaning or, or its emotion. Um, he's harnessed that to a story that that feels like it means something rather than a story that feels like a frame that's just there to for him to display his magnificent sentences on. Um, yeah. And, and it's also very
2: funny, which I feel like is a is a humbler type of virtuosity. Um, when you when you just demonstrate how pitch perfect your dialogue is, and how your sort of uncanny description of something just turns very comical, and that I I don't know I, I that doesn't feel as kind of self regarding as other types of of uh, performance in a novel.
1: Yeah, you you've been talking a lot, Gabe, about the the ways that this book reflects or doesn't or builds on, uh, or or transforms um, forces that you've seen in his other novels. I, I wonder what either of you think about the way that it references novels that are not written by uh, Michael Chabon. I mean, or stories work by other writers that not by Michael Chabon. Uh, in particular, it seems like Gravity's Rainbow, uh, the Thomas Pynchon uh, book. Uh, that he talks about at several points, uh, looms heavily here, uh, not least of all because it's also a story about uh, World War II and and people hunting down uh, rockets and, and such.
0: Hands up if you have not read Gravity's Rainbow. I am now raising my hand.
1: I
2: am also raising my hand. You know what?
1: So I I have to confess, I also could never make it past the first 200 pages of Gravity's Rainbow. And uh, there's a bit here where he's talking about Gravity's Rainbow and he he imagines his grandfather uh, not having read Gravity's Rainbow. And at no point in the book did I identify uh, with his grandfather more than in that moment. But it does, I will say, uh, uh, also talk about Salinger, who I imagine uh, we have all read, uh, if not more recently than at least
0: more fully. Yeah, a much more accessible uh, reference than Pynchon is um, the story for Esme with Love and Squalor um, is the one that comes up several times here. That's interesting. The reason
1: that I'm really trying to get at this, though, uh, is, is not for the specific details that that he seems to borrow from these stories and, and incorporate into his own, much as he says that he has borrowed from throughout his career and incorporated his grandmother's stories into his own, um, but rather because both of those those authors whom he mentions, uh, and dwells on are uh, famous recluses. Uh, both uh, Pynchon and Salinger uh, fascinate in part because of the ways that they have uh, stood out of public view. And uh, here we have a book about a narrator and an author um, exposing and overexposing exposing himself um, by by contrast. Um, th- what do you make of that? What do you make of this this desire to tell? Uh, and overtell uh,
0: family history uh, and personal history. That's a great observation. And Pynchon and, and Salinger in that formulation are are akin to the grandfather in the book, right? They're the ones who say only what they want to say and and are very comfortable with a lot of silence around the things that they say uh and and Shayban the maybe the real Shayban but certainly the Shayban who exists as the narrator of this book uh is the the garrulous one who wants to put everything down and get it all on the page and tell you everything and and not keep anything back um and and so it's interesting that he 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 uses those two writers as a as a kind of counterweight.
2: Well, as if they're his literary grandfathers, um, because of course this entire book is about blending Shave uh, on the Writer and Shave on the Man, and so he's talking about his his forebears uh, genetically, or I guess. The Three Family Ties, but also his literary forebears. And just this is somewhat related, um, not quite on the same theme. But I think that if we're looking for um, an analog to early Shabon, like the the virtuoso who hasn't quite figured out how to harness his skills, um, I would point you guys towards Nathan Hill, uh, the author of The Knicks, who seems... Very similar to Cheban in his humor and his beautiful sentences and his range and his ambition to write big sprawling, uh, novels that are loosely centered on family. Um, and I think the Knicks is actually, uh, like a great data point of what this book might have been if, uh, if Cheban were, you know, 25 years younger.
0: That sounds right up my alley. Um, And you have made me want to go out and get a copy of the next. I believe that it is on Katie's
1: 10 best books of the year.
0: It is. I I thought you were going
2: to say it's on my desk, which it is. But that doesn't help you, Gabe, because you're in New York. Anyway, proceed.
1: Well, so I know that we're running short on time. uh, But, you know, I've been talking about this sort of overexposure uh, of family history. But we're also talking about the ways that that, – you know, his his literary grandfathers are, are sort of the silent ones, the ones that only say as much uh, as they want to uh, and, and much as his, his own grandfather is. And there's one set of details here that comes up over and over again, which cannot possibly have been things that his grandfather said to him in the final 10 days of his life, which is that there is a lot of talk about his grandparents doing it yeah in this book, a lot of pretty explicit sexual detail what did you what did you two make of of all of that of of all of this i assume necessarily invented detail uh detail imposed on them much as we might impose a story of a, a backstory on on Pynchon or Salinger uh that that his grandfather can't possibly have told him
2: i mean to me that was just uh the author is the Ringmaster of this grand, <laughs> sweeping show that needs to have its dollop of sex and its dollop of meaning and its war story like component. I don't know. It, it didn't. It didn't bother me though. I think the closer. Oh, it didn't bother me. Oh, just okay. to be clear, <laughs> <laughs> one thing actually that um, did. I don't know. Make me raise my eyebrows. Were the multiple descriptions of women's chests, like various formidable busts and impressive busts, and I mean, I, I felt like the grandfather couldn't meet a new female character without making some sort of uh, evaluation of the quality of bust. It,
1: it is a very bust ebook.
2: Yeah,
0: I wonder if that's generational, right? I wonder if the grandfather's generation was one that had fixated on that part of the anatomy as a, as a, you know, as a turn on. Um I was struck by the fact that this is the third Chabon novel to feature a sequence of anal sex. Uh there's there are there is anal sex in Mysteries of Pittsburgh and there's uh, anal sex in Telegraph Avenue and then at the end of this one um Sally Sickle the grandfather's girlfriend who he meets late in his life um refers to uh, them having um performed uh, anal sex the night before so um, that is that's a very for all you shave out there deep
2: cut yeah ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> uh. Uh,
0: I would say uh, <laughs> to, to go back to what you were saying a minute ago though Katie um I I would uh, and to respond to Jacob's question, I would characterize it uh, the same way, but maybe with a slightly less cynical cast, which is that this isn't like, oh, well, it's a this is a carnival and a carnival has to include sex and a war story and, and all of these elements. Um, But that part of the project here is to take the grandfather's presumably terse uh, oral narrative and turn it into a, a like richly observed and visually detailed and sumptuous novel with all of the, you know, mastery of prose technique that Michael Chabon can bring to bear on it. And if you're going to recreate um, the lives of anyone, but particularly the lives of um, a married couple, then then if you were to leave out the sex, then you can't tell the story of their marriage, right? Um, th- there's that moment when the grandfather is going to pick up the grandmother after he's been incarcerated and she's been in a mental hospital and he hasn't seen her in, in I think it's like 18 months um, and he's driving to see her and he's bringing the daughter as well. So the Shabon, the Shabon character's mother, the grandparents daughter, um, is sitting next to him in the car. And yet he's about to see his wife for the first time in 18 months. And he can't stop thinking about having sex with her. It's like all that's on his mind, even though he's going to pick her up from a mental hospital. And when he arrives, it's not a sexy scene. It's not the romantic, uh, reunion that he imagines. Um, but, but those – you know, the, the lust element of a marriage is part of what you have to capture if you're going to do what he's trying to do in this book. Yeah. To me, the, the effect of,
1: of all that sex, uh, of all of that uh, physicality, of all of that, that lust that he captures is, is really to convey, to invent, um, to imagine a kind of intimacy that he only ever glimpsed in pieces, in parts – a part of his family story that he could only ever feel in fragments. Uh, He lets us feel uh, with that much more intensity uh, and that much more care.
2: That's lovely. I think we're probably at the point where we should start wrapping up. So um, you guys, I'd like to sort of go around and just hear whether you would recommend this book to our readers. Uh, Jacob?
1: I would absolutely recommend this book to our readers. i just finished it this afternoon, and I've been recommending it to people all week since you asked me to read it. And I'm so glad that I did, and I'm so glad that you did.
2: Excellent. What about you, Gabe?
0: I, I would definitely recommend it to anyone. Um, I, I love Bon and, and I've read most of his work, as, as I've probably made clear. And um, I, last night I was telling my wife I think this might be his best novel
2: yeah um i'm with you i highly highly recommend this book it's on my list of top 10 books for the year we didn't even talk about the hero cat uh raymond um he has this third act um sort of surprise thing that happens and i don't want to get too into it um but it was like the most joyous reading experience i've had in a really long time uh when he when he uh reveals his secret power anyway. Thank you so much for joining me, you guys. This was great.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us.
2: The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Gabriel Roth and Jacob Rogan, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.